everybody. Welcome back to Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. I'm Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Blankenship. Hello. Thank you for your patience while we took a week off. Uh, we are back to talk about a whole bunch of songs today. Last week, we asked you guys on Facebook, Twitter, and in other Ven Yi, uh, what were your favorite, least favorite uh, just plain weird Supremes covers. I was about to say Sopranos covers. That's a real different episode, and we're not we're not going there today. Uh, but you guys had some really fascinating uh, covers that I'd never heard of. You had a few old favorites. There was one I had to admit that I liked better than the original. But yeah, we weren't sure where this journey was going to take us, actually, when I asked the question. And Mark is going to tell you a little bit about our path to the episode that you're about to hear. Mark. Yeah, and I have to say that, again, it's just such a treat to have such awesome listeners because you guys really rocked our world with all of your far-flung suggestions. And <laughs> That is so true. I think the place for us to start is <laughs> just with this concept of, well, what makes the original songs by Diana Ross and the Supremes, or the Supremes, just the Supremes as they were known at the beginning, but what makes these original songs good? Is it... Because it's easy to say, oh, Diana Ross is not the world's most talented vocalist. And it's easy to say that the Motown sound is great on any song from that era, be it by the Temptations or the Four Tops or whatever. So what is it that makes these songs stand out? And I think that one of the things that this project has demonstrated for me is really what makes the original so good. Which is not to say that all of the covers are failures, but when you hear the covers in relationship to the originals, sometimes it makes me go, oh, right, I see that this new version is missing that, or oh, it adds this, which re- makes me reflect, reflect differently on the old one. So that's that's where I'm standing in this place of reflection. I don't know about you, Sarah. Um, well, this... This sort of raised a lot of questions for me about covers generally and what makes them good. Is it fidelity to the original or taking off from it? Like, uh, at some point we will do an episode about Simon and Garfunkel covers, and that's a very, um, that's a very interesting and very different um, answer, I think, to the question. In the case of the Supremes, this is like the original sort of like er machine pop. Mm-hmm. Pop. Um, that was as much packaging and construction as it was like talent, I guess. Mm-hmm. But then, then you're also into like all the huge meta questions about songs and pop music generally. Like, is it words? Is it music? Is it, as Frankie Sweet Music said, a beautiful marriage of words and music by Mr. Stephen Sondheim? Like, well, he didn't say it like that, because. <laughs> or is it just that? Is or is it something even more cynical, which is just the correct sounds in the correct order reach some chemical part of our brain. You know, is it just right, that we're right. so, is it just being manipulated in the right way? Yeah. And I think it, and is there also in the case of covers, like in that sort of 25 year cycle where everything old is new again. And in the eighties, we were thinking a lot about the late fifties and mm-hmm. early sixties and stuff like that. Is there that like nostalgia cheat mm-hmm. that a given song gets and particularly when it is performed by the um let's say pathetic baby sister of a classic later motown act for instance but we will get to that 
So I think that those are all great questions, and I do... And I'm not qualified to answer even one of them, P.S. But I think it's great that you do mention that the Supremes really are coming from the pop machine in a way that, say, Simon and Garfunkel aren't. Paul Simon confers the air of authenticity, which is a word that comes up a lot on this podcast, but Mm -hmm. he confers the air of authenticity because he created those songs himself, and then he and Art Garfunkel performed them. Right, but they were also coming out of a very... Not machine, but I think like constrained in its own way, New York folky scene at the turn of the 60s with the black turtlenecks and the everybody trying to sing alto that had its own. That was also a machine, sort of like but when I you're singing that, Peggy O, you're like, oh my God. But like, this is be so much more of a machine, though. Oh, in yeah, the sense yeah. That, no, absolutely. But and what, it, what, it, what I was trying to say at the beginning, and I'm not sure I said very well, was. It makes me wonder, well, were Diana Ross and the Supremes just plug-and-play artists, or were they actually really bringing something to this formula? Because one could argue almost, couldn't any woman with a halfway decent voice have been plugged into any of these songs and had the result be the same? Because God knows that's certainly what happened in the 60s. Mm. I mean, Darlene Love and Patti LaBelle were vocalists on things that they didn't get credit for. Mm -hmm. Darlene Love sang half the songs that the Crystals sang, but she never got the vocal credit because... It just sort of underlines the anonymity or the interchangeability of all of these pop acts of the 60s. And you think about the Archies had big hits and the there was a group called the Hollywood Argyles and they were just faceless studio musicians as opposed to, say, a Simon and Garfunkel where you think, well, if you're covering a Simon and Garfunkel song, there's an actual somehow true essence of a song that you are either going to spit on or honor. But with a cover of a Supreme song... I almost feel like you're. It's like saying that you're doing a cover of a, of a quarter pounder, right? It's just yeah, a product. or a cover of the phone company or Coca Cola. Yeah, and also with Simon and Garfunkel, like that um, that sort of assessment that you make of what is succeeding for you, the words or the music, is much more clear cut because Simon right. is the words and Garfunkel is the soaring tenor. And right. Like, not that Paul Simon's voice isn't like workable. But that's all it is. And it's like Dylan. Well, you know what? It'll get its own episode. We'll save it for group. But the point being, now, I do. before we get to the first clip, I do want to say that I don't want to give the impression that I think the machine that created the Motown sound is bad because I love those songs as any, I think, human being with ears and a heart loves those songs. And I don't want to suggest that being part of the pop music machine is perforce a negative thing. And I think that's uh, important for us to consider as we move forward, too. Actually, sometimes a quarter pounder tastes good. Or as I often say, uh, to call something cookie cutter is to forget that cookie cutters make cookies and cookies are good. Mm-hmm. So I think that the the slightly anonymous quality of a lot of these songs, it, it's okay. Because even though they're anonymous vocally in a certain way, they're still awesome songs. So with that, I would say that the first snippet that we'll be hearing will demonstrate what Diana really was bringing to the table, because this is a snippet of Love Child as covered by one LaToya Jackson. Actually, I believe this is Stop in the Name of Love. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's, well, I take it back. Let's, but anyway, this is LaToya Jackson singing the Supremes. See what you think. I think you'll my mama now. 
from Latoya's album "Stop." In the yes, Name of excuse Love. me, that is totally bunting error. Sorry about that. But it is "Love Child," but from an album also named after a Supreme song. Okay. And we're glad that it stopped in the name of anything because it's not. Well, here's what I'll say. Good, to me, dude. Diana Ross's single best vocal as a Supreme is on "Love Child." I love her vocal on that song, and to me, it demonstrates that she actually did have some vocal personality because guess who don't? Miss Latoya. Latoya, oh, I mean, it's really a shame. Like, I like everything else about the track, but the vocal, it, like, it's not that she's pitchy, it's not that it's poor exactly, but her breath control isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, like, clearly intimidated by not just, like, her own family history with this genre Mm -hmm. but also this song's history uh her breathing is off it feels very it's just like amateurish in this very fearful way i believe this cut is from 20 years ago so it's not like it was the 80s and she's sort of trying to step out from behind her brother or her brothers or janet and my note was just like janet would have broken this open yeah well and you know broken it open it isn't it ironic that actually on the song um uh um you want this by janet jackson there is actually a sample of love child isn't that interesting but not this one uh no no it's just a sample of the original instrumentation of love child but you're right and the other thing about latoya is her vocal phrasing, to use a very generous term, yes. is so weird and stilted. It's like ESL. It's like she's just looking at the words and making sounds. Like, R- love, Roxetti, child, yeah. never and, meant to be. And I think this was like Take 17, where this actually is a fairly tricky thing, I think, um, lingually to get through. And I just got the sense that she was like, please just let this be over kind yeah of like let me get through it without fucking it up and there's i think maybe what diana ross and the supremes brought to this song was like a naivete of time especially regarding the term love child mm. that is not necessarily possible to reproduce yeah oh that's a really good point and because there also is for those of you who have the courage a terrible cover of Love Child by a group called Sweet Sensation that had a number one hit in 1990 called If Wishes Came True. And they were sub Wilson Phillips. Let me just tell you that. And like sub expose. Ooh. And I love both Wilson Phillips and expose, but Sweet Sensation is no great shakes. And they had the same thing that you're talking about with this, which is a complete lack of naivete somehow. Also, I do think that in the bridge of Love Child, when Diana Ross says... I'll always love you. Like, there's just something nice about that. So, speaking of uh, moments where we hear a new vocal and perhaps we realize that there was more to Diana's vocal than we had been giving it credit for, our listener Brian, God love him, uh, sent us a cover of Baby Love, which was one of the Supreme's first hits, as rendered by Tim Curry. And let's just take a listen. Oh my 
God. Now, I know you're thinking... Welcome to WMST Moist FM's (laughs) Overnight (laughs) Sensations. That's Mr. Tim Curry with Baby Love. Yeah, and it was also Baby Love, but the chorus singing Stop in the Name of Love. So I guess it was kind of a medley. And I feel like that something... Uh, I feel like I just got wrapped up in a velour prison. (laughs) I don't... I get it. It's completely of its time. When was this joint? 76? Yeah, this was the late 70s. Yeah, this is definitely the warm wind blowing the stars around and other things. Um, that, feelings. Yes. <laughs> Nothing more than feelings. Um, like, the vocal is fine. Is it's it? just... I mean, yeah, it's fine. Sure. It's, you know, I don't... Um, I didn't feel like driving a chopstick into my eardrum. Huh. Um, okay. okay. I guess that... <laughs> I didn't. Apparently, that's not a universal. Um, I feel kind of bad uh, bagging on this cover, but it's it feels very, like, cynical and about, like, packaging a B-side or something. Like, something about it is not... It's like when Rod Landing. Stewart released all those albums that were songbook albums, and it didn't ever feel like he was just passionate about it. He just needed to make a quick nickel. Or yeah, whatever, and he's like, well, quickle. you know, this worked for Tony Bennett, and I still have my voice, so I'll like stalk around the stage wearing a you know white suit. And well, and here's the other thing for me, and y'all, also I hate Rod Stewart. So if I'm a, if what I'm about to say pisses anybody off, you know, you don't know where I live. So okay, I just find Tim Curry to be such a mannered singer. I find him, with the exception of um, when you know when he's in a musical, right? When he's in Rocky Horror, his overtly mannered singing is acceptable to me, especially a show like that. But for the most part, I just am like, shut up, just get over yourself, and you don't have to be so fucking flagrant about everything. It's not. It's always just so. Every sound is so rounded, and it's like he's constantly performing the concept of seduction. But he's so in his head about it that he never sounds authentic about it. And it makes me crazy, especially because I think he's so genuinely good as an actor. His singing to me is so mannered that it makes me crazy. It's like, okay, Dowager Countess, you know, you can take off your frilly hat and just sing the song to me. And this song to me is the ne plus ultra of that mannered bullshit. Well, and I think, and we'll talk about this a little more with an upcoming selection, but I think that Diana Ross is perhaps not duly appreciated for getting the fuck out of the song's way. Yeah, great point. I also think that... Which Boyfriend is Not Doing is what I hear, is what I'm going to reflect back to you. you correct. Yes, you have nailed it in your wisdom mm-hmm. that it's correct. And it also does point out that those Motown arrangements are good because Baby Love set to uh, Molasses Slow Music is not hot. Yeah, no. Now, we love you, Brian, listener Brian, but that you also recommended that we take a look at, although I don't think you quite liked this one, but you did also recommend that we take a look at um, the following Reba McIntyre cover of You Keep Me Hanging On. Set me free, why don't you, baby? Get out of my life. I really wanted to cut it off right there because that, that's classic Reba, y'all. I mean, 
All right. First of all, I like was listening to this via YouTube and it's like just a little collage of Reba who is shot really looking like the Gabrielle Carteris of country music. Um, No offense to either of you ladies. It's just not. There are ways that Reba should dress and a bunch of these photos did not um, showcase that. Um, I don't object to Reba generally. Oh, no. Actually, I think Reba is an angel I like on her. the earth. She has a brand. She's obviously extremely smart and savvy. However, she should take, perhaps, with shit like this, a lesson from not only uh, Mrs. Dolly Parton, but Diana Ross, and not oversing the verses quite so much, because when you do that, especially with this song, and like any iconic song, like you've got to... Like when it's time for you to whatever rail the chorus's ass, then if you've just been over singing the whole time, there's no contrast, there's no feeling, there's no build. Like this just seemed like a sort of technical. It seemed like a technical. Like when we had whatever when I played a um, for my piano metal rating in the state of New Jersey many years ago before God was a boy. Wait, uh, when God was a boy, uh, you had the technical. Part, which was just like figure skating also has this right and this is what that felt like that it was like yeah i can i can step to the supremes and now i have like it's right it's very competent it's not like she misses any notes i also don't feel like uh she she's like just on top of the song and not and miss in Re- it there's no storytelling miss reba is an incredible storyteller through song i think but you're right that sometimes her affectations get the best of her and it's also very apparent on her cover of Beyonce's uh, If I Were a Boy and on Kelly Clarkson's Because of You. It's almost like when she covers someone else's material, she can't trust herself to just tell the story. She has to make it the Reba version. And she overdoes the way that she'll add 17 syllables to every word. And I think that Reba is fabulous. I mean, I could name you 41 Reba McIntyre songs. Well, and actually, ironically, when she covers Fancy, she makes it like the iconic, essential version of the song. So it's not every cover, but it's like covers that come from other genres or something. She can't quite do it. Anyway, I agree with you. I love Reba, but this cover's not for me. Now, however, I think it's time to turn to a cover that I think, well, this is, this is a cover of You Keep Me Hanging On by Kim Wilde that hit number one on the U.S. pop chart in the 80s. And sure uh, did. let's take a listen. I knew the Kim Wilde version of You Keep Me Hanging On first. And as far as I'm concerned, it is a masterpiece. It is fabulous. It is exactly right because it takes that hot factory pop sound of the 80s and applies it to the song. It Kim Wilde is a, not a great vocalist, but she also doesn't get in the way. And like, she just, she gets in there. She hits her sort of wobbly high note. She, she sells me what I need to be sold. I just love it. I just think there's something so um, nice and like weirdly, I, I kind of like that she's not a powerhouse vocalist. It's just, there's, I just really buy it from her in this song. And I love 
the 80s synth beat underneath it. And I know that has a lot to do with it being the first version I've heard, but I also love the Supremes version. But oh my God, I can't get enough of this one. Always and forever, thumbs up. Uh, I think this is the gold standard probably of the 80s Supremes covers. I don't love it, but that's because it really was ubiquitous. Um, Also, I mean, she isn't a great singer. She's sort of like the poor man's blondie with the looks too. Mm -hmm. But I kind of respect the fact that like she made... She made a nice little life mm-hmm. for herself with that. And there is something that, you know, given what we've been talking about in this episode, that, you know, you have to get out of the way of the song. Like, this is absolutely a quintessentially 80s take on it with that. Like, that has been stuck in my head since I started prepping this episode yesterday. This also makes a great sort of a bookend with a human league. Don't you want me baby? And some of the Pat Benatar songbook. Pat Benatar could really sing, but um, what's it? Uh, uh, Hit me with your best shot is really pretty bad vocal work from her, but she's fucking pissed. Like she's feeling it. And that's why it works. And I think that's why this song works. And she's like, bro, Fuck you. Call me back or don't, but enough already. And couldn't you also hear this right next to Venus by Bananarama, their cover of Venus? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And they really couldn't sing either. They just looked cool. Yeah. I, you know, subscribe. Um, I subscribe to that. Now, moving on. Oh, and by the way, thank you to Meredith for mentioning this. Uh, This is uh, an essential one to discuss. And then moving on, we also got a message from our listener Matthew, who encouraged us to take a gander at the Stray Cats cover of You Can't Hurry Love. Here's the thing. I want this one to be my favorite. I had never heard this before. Um, There's something about it. I don't know. Like, he's not committing. Like, Setzer, I always sort of got this feeling about Brian Setzer and the Stray Cats that, like, and this is actually true of a lot of bands. Like, nobody actually wants to sing. Like, if it's a band composed of guys that are also playing they're all like, we, you know, acknowledge that we can't all do instrumentals, but like they're a little annoyed and like they'll draw straws. This is true of one of my brother's bands. He's just like, whenever he has to sing, he's like, but why? Like, I'm a bass. I don't want to deal with it. Like, I am also playing bass. Leave me alone. Let's get a lead singer. And I get the sense sometimes with Brian Setzer that he um, is annoyed by the lyrics part of his job and just wants to be squirrel nut zippering it up with like girls in um, dotted Swiss circle skirts, like doing cartwheels in front of him on the like band stage. And he just plays the guitar. Um, I really like this rockabilly version of it, but Setzer is like clearly uh, annoyed by having to do the vocalization and that knocks it down to like a B plus for me, but I'm still glad that this is now in my iTunes library 
it's it's a pretty good cover. What'd you think? I agree with you that Brian Setzer always seems like he is putting on a persona more than he's giving a performance. Now, obviously, in pop, that's completely fine. Lady Gaga, David Bowie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like I can't ever get passionate about Brian Setzer or the Stray Cats or the Brian Setzer Orchestra, which was part of the weird swing revival of the 90s. Right. But I can sure have a good time. And I will say that to me, this is jumping. I, I don't disagree with you about the fact that he doesn't necessarily seem like the most committed vocalist, but <laughs> that rah part that we heard even in the sample, I just love it. And I think this is. Well, a- he's also sort of like, well, you, since you can't hurry, love, I'm not even going to try. Lates and then just plays guitar for a while instead of singing. Like, yes. okay, sure. But I just really think that this is a great uh, example of um, a band with a brand that knows how to make the song work within its brand, right? Whereas Reba was probably overdoing it and like really overdoing her shtick. I feel like Stray Cats here, they do their rockabilly thing and they they make the song fit their mold, but they're not overdoing it. It's not like lots of extra twang or lots of extra like shouts. It just seems like pretty natural to me. I don't know how to articulate that in a way that's going to sound super scientific but it just feels to me like this is a fairly relaxed rockabilly cover of a song and it it, and then it it didn't let the cover like cover it like it didn't let the song wear it if that makes any sense like it was a very confident um switch of genres that worked because brian Setzer, in addition to not really feeling the vocal is also not intimidated particularly by other styles because he can really play and he knows music i feel i don't know anything about the guy personally but well i think it also speaks to that lamont dozier holland or no sorry holland dozier holland who wrote you can't hurry love that they really came up with a hot ass melody that translates well to multiple genres of music so they chose the stray cats chose a song that is sturdy enough to exist in multiple places too which I think that's a testament to the songwriting and the fact that the that Brian Setzer himself is a good musician and so he knows how to make it work. Uh, and finally, we've come to I feel like the only road that we could end on. Honestly, mm-hmm. the, the this we had to we had to end here. Multiple people mentioned this. I think Sarah and I both thought of this as as soon as we came up with this idea. Oh, absolutely. This is. With his first top 10 single in America, I don't know if you knew this, but this was his first top 10 hit in America. This is Phil Collins and You Can't Hurry Love. This is the class of the group, in my opinion. I didn't, I heard this first before I ever heard the Supremes version um, or knew that it was a Supremes version. Whatever. I was young and stupid. As much hay as I've made from Mr. Phil Collins riding a girl's bicycle, Google it. Um, <laughs> this, is a, this is a great cover because 
in contrast to the Stray Cats version, he keeps it very close to the genre. Yes. He does a couple of his own things with it, but this is also somebody who, I think because he was a drummer, understands where the like um, pulse of the song is. Yep. And obeys that. Uh, do we know who is on backing vocals? Is no, that but Philip Bailey again. Let or? me let me do a little research on that. If you want to keep talking, I'll because come back to I, you. Because I I think that my sense was that he. I mean, the video is like a bunch of him, and then like the sunglasses and everything like that. So I sort of I think internalized that he sang all the parts and they mixed it together, which is you know standard operating procedure. But I do feel like that the top note of his, the backing vocals on the chorus. Apparently sounds... it's all Phil Collins. Oh, what do you know? Well, and he does have like, he has a pretty good, clear voice. And also like to his detriment, sometimes once people stopped learning how to say, you know, knowing how to say no to him, uh, is a, you know, good storyteller and can convey these things very simply. Um, and that I think I wouldn't say that he was necessarily super confident in, well, whatever. I can't read his mind. But this is also very confident, and I think that's why it works. That he's like, he understands what the song is supposed to do and how it's built. He knows the layout of it. He feels comfortable in it. And that definitely shows versus some of, like, versus the um, versions that we heard at the beginning of the episode, those covers felt either people were very intimidated or were kind of like, self-parodying the songs yes. and this is just like i love this song i've been singing it in the you know shower and in the car since it came out and here's my tribute to it doing all the parts yeah and here's the thing i hadn't heard this in a while and it reminded me that phil collins is awesome honestly i it's like this really made me reappreciate phil collins because i feel like he has become sort of a punchline mm-hmm. in in the last 10 or 15 years. And you know, that shitty song from Tarzan is one of the reasons. You know, yeah. his, everything from... And also when he decided to tell us about homelessness in Another Day in Paradise. I mean, and that was literally 25 years yeah. ago. I saw that tour. Yeah. And we left during that song because my friend's sister was driving. She's like, I can't. But you know, I feel like... Bef- w- Everybody but, out. And so songs like that have overwhelmed the legacy of Phil Collins, I feel. And this song, or In the Air Tonight, or some of the great Genesis songs, like That's All, for instance, I'm just Mm -hmm. thinking, or Invisible Touch is a great song, obviously, No Son of Mine. These are great songs. Against All Odds. Oh, take a look at me now. I mean. So this song is hot, and I would say if you have a knee-jerk reaction to it, is it only a knee-jerk reaction to the ongoing public persona of Phil Collins? Or is that your knee bouncing up and down Oh, to this hot, hot hit? Because that's what it was on this end that I was like, oh, is this going to be embarrassing? And I'm going to have to talk about how I used to love this video and get up and dance around the den. No shame here. No shame here either. <laughs> and Sarah Talk About Songs is a weekly podcast created and hosted by Mark Blankenship and Sarah D. Bunting and edited by Sarah D. Bunting. That's me. If you'd like to request a song for discussion or share the mixtape of your soul, we are all about it. Send us an email at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com. 
tweet us at TalkSongs or visit our brand spanking new Facebook page. That's Mastess.podcast or just search Facebook for Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. Today's theme music was written and performed by David Gregory Byrne. And if you'd like to buy an ad, we welcome you. Advertise your business, send a personal message, or just hum a few bars. Email us at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com to get started with your advertising journey. Until next week, this is Mark. And this is Sarah. And this... And this was was Mark Mark and Sarah. Sarah. Talk about songs. Talk about songs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... Well, if it's too professional, people will feel alienated. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.